I'm praying that the Lord would speak to us through this chapter to be more evangelistic this summer. So Acts chapter 11 and verse 1. And what I want to do is we'll work through these verses, but let's just read the first couple of verses and then we'll get into it. The apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, lowercase w. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. Let's have a word of prayer tonight. We're going to look at the subject, three hindrances in Acts chapter 11. Three hindrances to gospel work. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel. Lord, uh, the power to change lives, to save souls, and to save our our destiny, and to change it for eternity. Uh, Father, save us from our our, uh, destiny of burning in a literal hell and suffering Uh, Lord, in torments and agony, I I thank you so much tonight, Lord, that that's not going to be the case. We studied that in Sunday school. Thank you, Lord, for a church that's still sticking by these doctrines. And Lord, uh, we're more like Christ because of it, because we uphold the doctrine of eternal punishment. Um, And we do that just as our Savior did. Lord, please help us uh, to faithfully warn and to continue, Lord, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you'd stir up our hearts and that you'd help us to identify these three hindrances as we go about seeking to do gospel work here, to invite people out to our services so that they can hear the gospel, hear the truth of the word of God and be saved, and then to grow and become followers of Christ, be obedient to the commands. Lord, we pray that you'd bless this now to uh, this end, that you would be glorified, that souls would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, the apostles, the apostles, those are sent ones. The Lord organized his church during his earthly ministry, and he gathered men, disciples, and trained them, and these disciples became his apostles, and they built the church, and they they founded the church with doctrine. And so they're the foundation, laying down the doctrine of the church, says the apostles and brethren, uh, men there that were saved, uh, that were in Judea. That's the southern region. If you were to look at a map of Israel, the southern region. And that's where Jerusalem was located there. And they had heard in Judea that Gentiles had also received the word of God. Up until this point in the book of Acts, the first church and really the center of all Christian activity is Jerusalem. Now that's about to change. It's about to go from the southern region of Judea, Jerusalem, to 300 miles north to a major metropolis city, Antioch. That was like the major city, uh, Roman city in Syria. Today it's it's in Turkey. It's a Turkish city. Things are changing now. And... This is really, this is officially the opening of the church age. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. Now, the, the apostles, they, they set the foundation of the doctrine. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Then believers were placed into the body of Christ. So that's the beginning of the church. But this is the official opening of the church age which is primarily a Gentile church. Primarily, Gentiles being saved and added to the body. So what you're looking at is ground zero. Antioch is the center of the Holy Spirit's movement throughout the rest of the book of Acts. It's the center of missions in the book of Acts. And right now, Peter is going to have to defend his ministry because he went to the Gentiles with the gospel. And so he's defending his ministry against the circumcised. Notice in verse 2. 
when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. Now, these are not Judaizers. These are Jewish Christians. These are the brethren in Jerusalem in this first church. The only local church at this, at this point that's really been mentioned. So they're not Judaizers, and I say that because if you look at the end of this thing, after Peter makes his defense, and they are convinced that this thing is of God, look what happens all the way down in verse 18. When they heard these things, those who were of the circumcision, the Jews that were saved, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, guys, the Judaizers wouldn't have said that. They were teaching another gospel, Paul said. They wanted to bring everybody back under the law. So that's not a Judaizer statement. That's a, a Jewish Christian back in verse 2. <clears throat> they were of the circumcision, meaning Jews, and they contended with Peter. So what I find here is I find the first hindrance to gospel work in any church, in any age, in any locality, the first hindrance will be other believers. Other believers. Before I elaborate on that, I'd like to say that Peter at this point, because we're taking a dispensational view of the book of Acts, Peter is using his keys to open up the gospel to the Gentiles. He used his keys back in Acts chapter 2, and he did that to open up the door of the gospel to the Jews. Now, keys are understood in relation to a door. A key fits in a doorway, right? Or a gate. And a key is used to open up a door when it's locked. And so Acts chapter 2, he opens up the door of the gospel, an opportunity for the gospel to be heard for the Jews. Acts chapter 10, he opens up the door of the gospel to the Gentiles with Cornelius, this Gentile man, and with those that were of his household. And guys, for a Jew to go into a Gentile household, this was forbidden. That's why they're contending with him. That's why they're hindering him in his, in his work. Because they, and, and if you would have asked Peter a month before this, he would have said the same thing. I would never step into a Gentile's home. I would never defile myself. They're unclean. They're dogs. I certainly would never sit down to eat a meal with them. But then God gave Peter that whole vision. You remember the sheet coming down, all those ceremonially unclean animals, and God said, arise and eat. And Peter said, no way, Lord, I've never eaten anything like that in my life. God was trying to show Peter, I want you to go to the Gentiles, a people that you consider to be unclean. And so there was this discrimination and there was this, this opposition from Believers, from Jewish believers. Now, I want you to see this just because you, you've got to see it. It's not enough for me to just tell you. So look at Acts chapter 14, verse 27. Peter is using his keys. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I've given to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And Peter used those keys. So Acts chapter 14, verse 27 Notice here, and when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, Paul and Barnabas, and how they opened the door of faith, how, how God had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. The Lord used Peter. He had the keys. He was the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He opened the door of faith. In another place, we won't go there, but it's 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. Paul said, a great door and effectual is opened unto me. And then he said, and there be many adversaries. So there's a lot of people trying to kill him, trying to stop him. So it's not in this chapter, but that's also a hindrance to the work. Unbelievers 
trying to stop him. But this door was opened up by Peter. He has the keys. He used them to open up an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Now, if you think that when you die, you're going to go up to the pearly gates and St. Peter is going to be standing there and that he's the doorkeeper that lets you into heaven, that's not at all what Jesus meant. People see, I've given to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and they, they read that Peter has the keys to heaven. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the kingdom. If you want the one who has the keys to keep you out of hell, I'll, I'll read it to you. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. Jesus Christ said, you come to me. In other words, if you want to go to heaven, and if you don't want to go to hell when you die, you go to Jesus because he has the keys. He says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he says, I have the keys of death and of hell. You got to go to Jesus He's got the keys in verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. All right. Now, back in Acts chapter 11, Peter, he's having to defend himself. And in verse 3, they're saying to him, this is the accusation, thou wentest into men uncircumcised. Those are... Non-Jewish people, Gentiles, considered to be unclean, and you ate with them. That's their accusation. They're making their charges, and everybody's listening as witnesses. But Peter, he rehearsed the matter. That is, he, he told the order of events, one right after another. And what he says here really is just a repeat of chapter 10, but we'll read through it. He rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, meaning that he explained it. I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descended, as it had been a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners. And it came even to me, upon the which, when I had fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call thou, call not thou common. And this was done three times. And all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately, right after his vision, there came three men. You see in verse 11? They were already come to the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. They were sent by Cornelius, this Italian soldier, and sort of like a company commander. And the Spirit bade me go with them, so me, that's one person, Peter, them, that's three people, that's four so far, nothing doubting. In other words, trust it, go right away. Moreover, these six brethren, so Peter is looking at brethren from the church that were uh, obviously saved Christians, or saved Jews, I mean, he said, I'm going to take these six brethren, so that makes how many? Makes ten. The Bible is an amazing book. It's so intricate. And if you study the numbers of the Bible, called numerology, 10 is the number of the Gentiles. It's a Gentile number. 10 Gentile kings in the uh, tribulation period. Uh, There's a lot, a lot of things there. You'll look at Genesis chapter 10. It's just an interesting study. And when, when the door was opened up, To the Gentiles, you have ten men visiting uh, Cornelius' house. Just incredible. But anyways, and uh, he says, send men to Joppa and call for Simon. So he was waiting, verse 13, this man was waiting at his house. And uh, he stood, let's read verse 13, and he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, Cornelius, which stood and said unto him, send men to Joppa. 
and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words, W-O-R-D-S, lowercase w. He's going to tell you words, just like verse 1 where it said, received the word of God, lowercase w. That's referring to the gospel as it's preached. The words of God preached, not the capital W, Jesus, the Son of God. This is the written word. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. And there's a reason why I emphasize that. But he says, he'll tell you words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Now that is a great revelation. Because this, this verse tells us that the way that a man gets saved is he needs to hear words preached by a gospel preacher. He needs to hear the word of God preached in order to be saved. You see, this man, if you notice in chapter 10, in verse 2, this man was a, a very religious man. Chapter 10, verse 2, the Bible describes him as a devout man. He was following the Jewish religion, one that feared God with all his house. So he was a God-fearer, which gave much alms to the people. He gave a lot of money and prayed to God always. That is, you could walk up to Cornelius at any point in time and say, Hey, Cornelius, how's your prayer life? He'd say, I pray all the time. I just pray. I love to pray. He's a very religious man, you see. But guess what? He still needed to be saved. You get that? He's even following the right religion. He's following Judaism. Now, of course, it's all, it's all twisted and messed up. Jesus talked about that a good deal. The, but you understand what I'm saying? He still needed to be saved by hearing the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice... And I take you to these verses because I hope that you'll mark them in your Bible because you can use them as a soul winner. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I want you to see this. That's one verse that proves that you have to hear words in order to be saved. You say, what are you trying to say? Guys, if you think that you can take your baby on its eighth day and have it baptized to have its original sin washed away, that's not the way that the gospel works. That's not the way that salvation works. They have to hear the word of God. Everett is is how old? What is he, seven? Is Everett seven? Okay, at seven years of age, he finally understood and realized that he needed to be saved after hearing the word preached for his whole life. And after hearing the word preached, he responded by accepting Jesus as a Savior and was saved. So James chapter 1 verse 21 says this, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness. You see, God won't do anything with a proud heart. You've got to humble yourself. Receive with meekness. Just come to the word of God like a child. Say, Lord, I don't know anything. Teach me. The simple plan of salvation. The engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now you're in Hebrews, James. Go to 1 Peter 1. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. And go to 1 Peter 1 and then look at verse 22. 1 Peter 1, verse 22 and 23. What I'm trying to tell you tonight is that being religious is not enough. You still need to be saved. And how are you saved? You're saved by hearing a gospel message preached and responding with saving faith. Trusting. Putting your full weight, all your confidence, all your hope, 100% in what Christ has done for your soul. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. What does it mean to obey the truth? Through the Spirit, the Spirit uses the Word of God to save your souls. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, 
See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. Do you see it? God uses the seed of the word of God to plant it within you and brings about the new birth. It's not water. There are religions who teach baptismal regeneration. That is, you're born again when you go into the baptismal pool. That is a false teaching. Back to Acts chapter 11. You're saved by hearing words. Now, has there ever been a time in your life where you heard the words of the gospel preach and responded with faith? Repenting of your sin and trusting 100% in what Christ did on the cross, plus nothing. Has there ever been a time in your life when you did that? If there's not, guys, you need to get saved. The Bible way, by hearing words as they're preached and responding with faith. So he says, as I uh, was telling them words, uh, he said, you'll hear words and you'll be saved, verse 15. And as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us, at the beginning. So notice the two words. Them, those are the Gentiles. Us, the Jewish converts. And when did the Holy Ghost fall on them? Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' house. When did the Holy Ghost fall on us, Peter is saying? At Pentecost. That's the beginning. The day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Verse 16, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said... John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. All right? Now, so far we've seen two hindrances. One, other believers, and two, religion. All of the world's religions, all of them, they all teach, do this and you'll live. You can just, I mean, just simplify it. Bible-believing Christianity. Baptist faith. Now, this is faith that was held by other groups prior to us. The Waldensies, uh, Anabaptists, Paulicians, Donatists. Different names on down through history. But this same Bible-believing faith, this New Testament salvation... It says, done. So all the other world religions do this and live. Bible-believing Christianity says it's done. It's done for you. And all you do is believe, which implies repentance, yes. But all you do is believe. So, other believers and religion. Now, there's one more. Bad theology. Bad theology will hinder you in your gospel work. So... Notice that he says that ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost in verse 16. Now, there's a distinction that needs to be made here because it says the Holy Ghost and it doesn't say fire. All right? A little bit tedious tonight, but this is truth we need. We need this truth. Notice that it doesn't say fire. Now, go all the way back to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. If, if, uh, if you don't turn in your Bible, you won't get it. You will not get it. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman. Studying is work sometimes, but it's enjoyable work. I never get tired of it. But you've got to turn in your Bibles. You've got to see it. Don't be like those who are just convinced because a preacher said it. The reason why I go to certain key verses is that you have to hear me say a truth from one place in the Bible and then compare it with Scripture. And once you see this is what the Bible says about itself, then you'll be convinced from Scripture and you'll be a stronger Christian for it. You'll be able to stand with others on the street and contend with them and refute what they're saying because they'll say what you need is you need the fire from the Holy Ghost. You say, no, I, I got saved to escape the fire. And it doesn't come from the Holy Ghost. It comes from Jesus himself at the second advent. Don't you know that? Now, what are you talking about? 
You have churches today that met and people standing up and frantically saying, fire, fire, fire. And, and they had their great revival meetings and they're praying, God, let fire fall from heaven. They don't know the first thing what they're talking about. What they mean is some kind of a Holy Ghost experience whereby they are empowered for duty or service or victory over sin. And that's not at all what it says. All right, look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. John the Baptist preaching. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, does that sound good or bad? Bad, right? Okay, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water, John the Baptist, unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John is looking out at a mixed congregation. He's looking at some of them. Those of you that respond with repentance to my baptism, baptize with the Holy Ghost. Those of you who do not you will be baptized with fire unless you get saved. Now look, verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand? Who? The one who is mightier than John. And he will thoroughly purge his floor. Stop for just a second. You had a threshing floor. Imagine you're off in the corner of a field somewhere and you brought back all of the, all of the wheat or the barley or whatever you're growing and you bring it to this threshing floor in the evening and before you use this threshing floor it's cleaned right and there's things that's put down afterward but it's got to be cleaned and so how do they clean it they burn it off burn it clean and it's just like a round i've seen it i've seen one of these things it's pretty interesting to hear him talk about it but it's this round surface perfectly flat dirt and they burn the thing and they use the fan to you know to spread the fire and to to scorch it clean he's saying he's going to come down to this field of this world and he's going to take those that are refuse and uh the chaff and he's going to burn them so he'll have his fan in his hand he'll thoroughly purge his floor gather his weed into the garner the good stuff those who are saved and baptized with the holy ghost but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, does that sound good or bad? It's bad. That's the second advent. Difference between the first advent and the second advent. At the first advent, Jesus is baptizing people with the Holy Ghost. Second advent with fire. When he comes, he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance, the Bible says. So, now you take that and then you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 5. You've got to see a second time just to confirm it. See it a second time in Acts chapter 1. The lips of our Savior now. Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. Jesus is talking to his own dear people. His beloved. And in verse 5, look what it says there. John baptized with water. But you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And he left the fire out. You see, you've got to study the Bible closely. He left the fire out. The fire does not refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to judgment. So, back to Acts chapter 11. Now, why were these believers baptized with the Holy Ghost in Cornelius' house and in his property with the evidence of speaking in tongues? Why did that happen? Well, after these, these uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, after they heard Peter give his defense... And they followed it one event after another. 
then they were convinced that this was, in fact, the work of God. You see, uh, verse 17, For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 2, Pentecost, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. You see, they were convinced. All right, Peter, it's proof. It's proof to these Jewish Christians. It's proof that God was saving the Gentiles the same way that he saved the Jews. Now, that's all they got up to this point. There's more that they need to learn. We're going to learn that in Acts chapter 15. But now they've got it. Okay, the Gentiles can get saved by hearing the preaching of the gospel, just like we got saved. And the Jew got his proof. He got his sign. That was speaking with tongues. In the presence of Peter and the, three, and the, uh, the six other brethren that he brought with him. They were there as witnesses to this Jewish church in Jerusalem. We saw it. God gave us this sign. So they could not, they could not uh, you know, fight against God at this point. All right. Now, the last hindrance to gospel work, you have other believers. They'll hinder you. You have religion. That'll hinder you. I'm going to give you an example of all three of these to close. And you have bad theology. Bad theology will hinder you in gospel work. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, verse 18, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. This is a favorite verse of Calvinists, because it says that God had to grant repentance so God had to give repentance, otherwise they couldn't be saved. It's a favorite verse uh, for Calvinists. And you say, who are they? Those are people of different denominations, some of them Baptists, especially in the early part of this country, uh, Presbyterian primarily, but today uh, non-denominational churches, you just have to check their statement of faith to find out because they're not even putting... Uh, labels on signs anymore. It, just, it might just say something. It might just say the bridge or, or the crossing or one thing or another, and you don't know what it is. You've got to look at the statement of faith. A Calvinist follows the teachings of John Calvin, a Swiss reformer. Okay, I've talked about him a little bit. We need to know about him, especially now in the time that we live in because of the internet. We need to know about him. John Calvin taught heresies. Guys, that's a strong statement. He taught heresies. That is, he taught things that uh, touch on the gospel, on salvation. He taught things that were wrong. And uh, I don't play around with it. I don't fool around with it. I have Calvinist friends, and they are my friends. But I don't play around with this theology because it's deadly. And it is, just as I said it is, a heresy. Because what the Calvinists believe is they believe in the doctrine of predestination that there are only, only those who are uh, predestined or foreordained to be saved, and they are all that will be saved, and then everybody else is just out. They teach that, the doctrine of predestination. They also teach the uh, particular Baptist that I'm going to read about here in just a second, they teach that the, the atonement is limited. What happened on the cross, Christ shedding his blood and dying for sinners, that that is limited to the elect. So only the elect are going to get saved. And the atonement only covers them. So they believe in a limited elect for a particular, a limited atonement for a particular group of people called the elect. You say, why is that important? Because if you follow, listen, if you follow that doctrine for long enough, it will kill the soul-winning efforts of a good church. If you follow that for long enough, you'll stop passing out tracts. You'll stop being evangelistic. You'll stop praying for the lost. You will no longer take an interest in missions. 
You say, are you sure about that? I've taken a look around for long enough, and those statements are true. They're general statements, but they're true. It will kill the soul-winning fervor in a Baptist church if Calvinism gets in. Um, Let me give you an example from history, and then I'll give you a, a current example, and then we'll have a word of prayer and close. Now, this illustrates other believers hindering gospel work. This illustrates a religion hindering gospel work. And this illustrates bad theology hindering a gospel work. This is William Carey. William Carey is most known for his missionary work. He was born in 1761. He was born into an Anglican home. You say, who's the Anglicans? Church of England. They, ba- they, they, they baptized your kind in fire. Our Baptist forefathers. They, they killed Bible-believing preachers and Bible-believing Christians. And some of the kings of the Church of England uh, made it illegal to have Bibles and burned them and so on. Church of England, it's a Protestant church. It persecuted Baptist people. Okay? Religion will hinder gospel work. Uh, So he was born into an Anglican home, but at the age of 17, he began to attend independent churches. That's referring to Baptist churches. Shortly thereafter, he was converted to Christ at age 21. Then he started to study infant baptism because the Church of England baptizes their infants. And after studying the Bible, he became convinced that the Bible teaches believers baptism by immersion. Not a sprinkling or putting a little cross on their head. So after being convinced, he went to John Ryland, who was a Baptist pastor, and he submitted himself to be baptized scripturally. After he did this, he ended up becoming a Baptist pastor himself and opening up a school. Uh, This man, he was a particular Baptist. Carrie, you say, what's that? Particular Baptists are Calvinistic Baptists. So they follow John Calvin. Limited atonement, only the predestinated will be saved. So, he goes to pastor's meetings. Now, remember, he's a young preacher. He's meeting with these pastor's fellowships, and he's preaching about the need for missions to these gatherings of preachers. And when he started to preach about the need of going to the heathen, going to those who have never heard, he was vigorously opposed by any attempt at missions. And that was because of their strong emphasis on predestination. This is a book called The Faithful Baptist Witness by Dr. Phil Stringer. Now, he decided he was going to go anyhow because he saw all the commands in Scripture to go and preach the gospel to every creature. So he went. Now, I'll grant it, he was a Calvinist who went. He saw the need and he went. I'll grant that, but he was opposed by his own denomination. I mean vigorously, like the author said. So Carey and then a a Baptist medical doctor, John Thomas, decided to go together. They became the first missionaries from England. First in 17, you know, late 1700s. Listen, that doctrine will kill your evangelistic fervor and your vision for ministries. They They left a man behind by the name of Pastor Andrew Fuller. And what he did was Pastor Andrew Fuller began handling the finances for these Baptist missionaries. So he was kind of like a mission agency. He took care of the prayer letter, so to speak, and the finances so they didn't have to worry about it, so they could just go. So Andrew Fuller starts traveling around trying to raise funds for missions, and he's viciously attacked by his own denomination. I'm telling you, three hindrances to gospel work, other believers, religion, in bad theology. You know what they did? They went anyhow. And they went and they didn't have enough funds. And God used them. God used them greatly. In the day in which we live now, I've listened to seminary classes with professors teaching at Calvinistic uh, institutes of learning. But I, I listened to this one particular seminary teacher and he had a burden for souls and a burden for the lost and he was talking to him about going out and starting churches and he said guys if you go out I could drop you in any city in this country 
And if you start praying and you start soul winning and knocking on doors and spend most of your time out witnessing and praying for the lost and trying to win the lost, you could probably get a family in a month. He said, by the end of the year, you might have 10 families in your church if you really went after it and if God was in it, 10 to 12 families. And just when he said that, the students in the classroom, you could tell it wasn't received well. One of them raised his hand and he says, who are you to say what God will or will not do? What if God did not foreordain and started talking like that? Calvinism and resisting that teacher's authority in that classroom and, and, the, the, and that teacher said to him, he said, son, God's not dead. You're dead. You're dead. He said, go and preach. And if you preach, they'll believe. Some will believe, right? I'm telling you, it kills the evangelistic fervor of Christians. So today, the preachers that, that you have heard about, and they're not the top guys, but these Calvinistic teachers are people like Vadi Bauckham, uh, John Piper, John uh, MacArthur, and the lot. And uh, these, are, these are good Bible teachers, talented men. But and and uh, there are others, but, but they're teaching heresies. And it needs to be resisted. Every 20 or 30 years... Calvinism has a comeback and then people buy into it and they get all excited about it. But then they realize uh, this doesn't line up with scripture and it's not good for our church. And so they throw it out and they turn away from it. That's just happening over and over and over again. So as a church, we're not going to get into it (laughs) and we won't let preachers who subscribe to the doctrines of, uh, of Calvinism. We're not going to let them preach in our pulpit or sing in our church. <laughs> We're not going to do that. You see, now folks, I think, I think all of you believe like, let's, let's finish here in 1 Timothy 2.4. Would you go to 1 Timothy 2.4? I think all of you believe like this, in the head. But I'm not sure about how you really believe in your heart. Because you show me a, a man's life and I'll tell you what he actually believes, okay? If a man prays fervently that the Lord would send forth laborers into his harvest, Matthew nine twenty eight, that man really believes in missions and really believes that God is active in this world. If a man gives to his local church faithfully every payday, that man believes what the Bible says about sowing and reaping financially and the need for the gospel to go around the world. If that man gives to missions above his tithe, that man really believes in missions. If that man reads his Bible every day, and if that man prays, and if that man seeks to win the lost, that man really believes. You say, I believe in prayer. Do you pray? Because if you don't pray, don't try to fool me. You don't believe in prayer, or you'd pray. You'd say, I get stuff from God. I got, a, I got a record of showing when I got stuff from God because I prayed. That's somebody who believes in prayer. Now listen, 1 Timothy 2.4, notice what it says. This is a good Calvinism killer. You just give this to them and it will shut their mouths because they can't answer it. You, you don't give them John 3.16. They have a way of getting around that, wrestling the scriptures. Give them this verse, 1 Timothy 2.4. God, our Savior, from verse 3, will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. You know who that includes? It includes the prayers for all men, verse 1, for kings, for all that are in authority, all, verse 1, all, verse 2, that all in verse 4 is including those people. Pray for President Joe Biden. Pray for those. I'm remembering what I said this morning about anger and then wrath and then blasphemies. <laughs> Pray for the, the baby killers. Pray for the drug dealers. 
God would have all men to be saved. Pray for the Sodomites. Now, there's a question about that because God gives them up, some of them, to vile affections, and he's given them up. But they can be saved if they mean business. Pray for them. God would have all men to be saved. That's God's will. And then uh, the other one, God's not willing that any should perish. We know that one. But they've heard that one quite a few times. Give them this one. You say, are you telling me that the all in verse 4 is different from the all in verse 1 and the all in verse 2? Because they'll tell you this, well, that probably means all the elect. Mm -mm. Uh Uh-uh. All means all. Right? Now, do you believe that? Now, if you really believe that, you would be busy trying to at least pray a soul in. And if you got to really praying about it, I bet you could see one person saved a year just praying for somebody to get saved. But if you believe that, you would say, all right, what can I do? What can I do to be busy doing what the early Christians were doing? They were going out and winning the lost to Christ. They were, yes, opposed by believers, by religion, and by bad theology. And today, believers are opposed. The worst place in the world to live as a Christian is in Nigeria. An open doors watch list, you can look that up. They have a list of the top five, but one of the worst has got to be Nigeria. I mean, the Christians are just hunted down. China, the gospel is exploding in China. They're persecuted. They have to hide from their government, but the gospel is just exploding It actually costs them something to be a Christian. It doesn't cost us anything. Maybe some rejection from time to time. And as you go about to be a witness and you start really getting a hold of this and becoming concerned with lost and seeing people as souls that are going to spend eternity somewhere, you will run into opposition from the people in your life who claim to be religious. Same way that I did. When my brother got all fired up about making sure everybody in his family was saved, he received opposition from the most religious people in our family. The people who were just just practical atheists and just spiritual blanks, they don't know the way up from the way down. <laughs> they didn't oppose him. They're just like, ah, it sounds cool, man. Sounds cool. You know, but it was the religious people that opposed him. And uh, you'll, be re- you'll be resisted by them and by other, pe- other believers. But listen, it'll, it'll all be worth it one day. It'll all be worth it. I'm going to close. I'm going to close, but let's just do this. A simple plan is to try to get people in here. That's a simple plan that we can all do. And we're going to start a visitation program. I've got tracks coming in the mail, new church tracks. I've got a thousand of them coming, so we've got to go get rid of them somewhere. We're going to start hanging door hangers. Just pray, invite, be a friend. I'm going to stop, I promise. We have to ask ourselves this question. Do I have any lost friends? You should have a lost friend or two or three. Now, that's a good advice for somebody who's been saved for a long time. Make friends with lost people. If you're just getting saved and coming out of the world, avoid your friends because that's where all the trouble comes from, old friends. But if you're, you've been saved for a long time, do you have any friends that are not already churchgoers? Because you need to become friends with them. And you know how that works. And then say, hey, I want to invite you to church. You know, and keep inviting and so on. You ought to be able to say on one hand, I got this person, I got that person, I got that person, and I'm trying to be a friend to them. And I'm praying for them, and I want them to get saved. If that's not happening, guys, we're wrong. We're not right with God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this message tonight. I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you for these that are willing to sit here uh, for a lengthy uh, Bible study and exhortation tonight, Lord. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for their, their desire. They're here on a Sunday night. They want to hear the word of God. We, we, we love you, and we know we don't love you like we ought to, but, God, we're here because uh, of you and because of the gospel. And, Lord, I, I, I know that we can go cold. All of us can. Times we can go cold, and we need to be stirred up again for, for souls. And, 
and for the, for the main thing. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us as a church, that you'd please do something here for us. And next week, as we preach more on this subject, Father, I pray that you would uh, continue to deal with us. We pray for those that are lost, Lord. Those, I know that all of us sitting here, and, and, and myself included, all of us have people that we think of and we pray for regularly. We want them to be saved. So, Father, I pray that you'd please save that soul or souls that's nearest to hell. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to go forth with, with tears weeping, to go forth bearing precious seed, and to come again rejoicing one of these days, knowing that we had a hand in, in bringing somebody to Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, before we're dismissed, I, I want to say this, and I didn't ask her ahead of time, and I'm sorry if I embarrass you ahead of time, but pray for Miss Rachel here. Pray for Mrs. Klein. She started a ministry, talk about soul winning, in an uh, all-female uh, prison ministry or correctional facility. And so she's doing a Bible study once a month, right? So pray for her. Souls will come from that, that ministry right there. And so we're, we're so excited, and we are behind you with our prayers. So.